Hi. Before you watch today's message, we wanted to invite you to support our ministry. We're currently working to raise $2 million by September 2021 to break ground on our first permanent home in over 10 years of bringing an ancient faith to a modern world. This new building will allow us to do so much more with our ministry, including improving the quality of the messages you enjoy every week. You can learn more and donate now at morethanabuilding.org. Enjoy today's message. All right. Well, good morning to everyone and welcome to the well here at STSA, where I'm going to start you off today with a joke. Once upon a time, there was a woman and this woman had three sons and uh, she loved her sons so much and she invested so much in her sons and her sons were her life, especially after her husband passed away. Once her husband passed away, the kids wanted to do anything they could to cheer up their mom because their mom was so sad and she was always down. So the kids said, we need to cheer up mom. So the three boys each came up with an idea of how to cheer up mom. The first son said, I'm going to buy mom a fancy house, a big mansion, $5 million, okay, you know, like 10,000 square feet and like bathrooms all around and TVs all around and, and everything just like fancy, fancy house. And this is what's going to cheer mom up. The second son came and said, you don't know anything about mom. Mom doesn't care about a house. Mom likes to travel all around and she's always in that little car. So we're going to get mom something to help her travel easier. We're going to get her a fancy limousine, very comfortable, like one of those cool ones, like with like the, the Hummer front or whatever, maybe or the, the van ones, one of those with its own driver. So she's going to have like food and drinks inside there. So this person spent was it $250,000 on this limousine with this fancy driver. The third son said, none of you guys know mom. Mom doesn't care about a house. Mom doesn't care about a car. Mom is spiritual and mom loves to read the Bible. So this son found a very special gift. He found a parrot that can recite the entire Bible. A parrot that had been trained in the jungles, okay, of the Amazon, okay, or on in the Himalayas or whatever it was, and this parrot had been trained for years by missionaries, and you could tell the parrot, Matthew chapter 29, 6, and the parrot would recite it. So the person said, this is the, the kid said, this is what mom is going to love more than anything else. They eat three, give the mom the gift, okay? The house worth $5 million, the car worth $250,000, and then the parakeet, which was worth more than what we said here, $100,000 for that parakeet. And then they go back to the mom. And the first son comes and says, mom, did you like my gift? And she says, you know, it was nice. The house was just so big. I just, I didn't know where anything was. And one time I got lost and I couldn't find the dog. So I sold it. You mean you sold it? You sold the house? Yeah, I sold the house. I found some guy who gave me $10,000 for the house. So I gave, it to, gave him the house for $10,000. You gave him $5 million, $10,000. She did what? Second son. I'm sure you love the car with the limousine and the driver and whatnot. Pay $250,000 for it. And the mom said, well, you know, the problem is the car was so big, okay, and I like to go into the city, and it was difficult, and the driver was so rude. So I found some guy in the street, and, I gave, and he gave me 500 bucks, and I gave him the car with the driver. The kid said, 500 bucks? You got rid of the car? I paid all that money for. Third son, mom, did you like the parrot? And the mom says, yes, thank you so much. She had a big smile on her face. Said, that was the best gift. 
And the son said, I knew you'd love that parrot. You like the bird, mom? She says, yes, it was delicious. <laughs> nothing is worse, agree with me, nothing is worse than something valuable that is wasted. Than something valuable, which has tremendous value, that the person who's in front of it doesn't see the value and ends up wasting an opportunity. We're just joining us here today. We're uh, in the middle of a series called More Than a Building, where we are answering this question right here, which is, what is church? What is church? What does it mean that we go to church, that we belong to a church, that we're part of a church? What does it mean that we're STSA church? Is church just a building, or is it more than that? And I would ask you that question. How would you answer the question? If someone were to ask you, what does it mean that you belong to a church? What is church? Is church a building? Is church a meeting? Is church some activity that you do on Sunday mornings? Is church a group of people? Is church a social club? If you don't know the right answer to the question, you may waste and squander something very precious and very valuable because you don't realize what it truly is. And in case you're wondering why we're doing this series, okay, if you've been around for a while, you know that we are doing this series because after 10 years of being portable church and renter's church, okay, and just renting different facilities, we're about to start construction on a piece of land in Arlington. And as I mentioned to you guys before, is that some people are saying that, great, now that you're about to build a building, now you'll finally be, quote, a real church, a real church. And that makes me think, does that mean we weren't a real church this whole time? Many people, unfortunately, limit church to a building. But I don't think Jesus did. And I don't think the apostles did. And I don't think the early church did. Because did you know that for the first three centuries of Christianity, when the church was at its strongest, there was no building. So clearly when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, he wasn't thinking about bricks and mortar. And when the apostles went to spread the church, they weren't thinking about uh, a foundation to dig in terms of stone and bricks. They were thinking of something much greater. They were thinking not about a place to meet in, but a purpose to meet for. And that's what the church is all about. I love this verse from Acts chapter 7, verse 47 to 49. It says, Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, obviously. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my place of rest? And I know the answer to that question. When it says, what is my place of rest? I know the answer. It's not bricks and mortar. It's not concrete and stone. What is the place of my rest? The answer is, look around. There it is. It's us. We are the place of his rest. When his people, his children, gather in his name for his purpose, not for the sake of the building, but for the sake of the mission which he started, that's his place of rest. That is his church. And that's what we're looking at here in this series is what does that mean that we are the church? What is it that we gather for? What defines us? Is it just the building that we meet in? Obviously, as the title of this series, it is more. And that's why what we're doing is we're going through our core values here at STSA Church and what it means to be a member of this church, what it means that we are STSA. And we've gone through the first two core values thus far, and let's see if we can do a review right here. Can anybody remember the first core value here at STSA? And over in Arlington, shout it out. Anyone remember? What is the first core value here at STSA? Anyone remember? Limitless acceptance. Very good. It says this. Let's read it all together. It says, we believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. 
starting point of this whole thing, all of us are here because somebody from above accepted us when we didn't deserve it, and then we showed up at this place, and someone down here below accepted us when we didn't deserve it. We're all here because we've been accepted when we didn't deserve it, so it's our duty to continue that, and we will continue to accept others the way Christ has accepted us. That was week one. Who remembers the second core value? Anyone remember what's second core value? Authentic community. Very good. I heard you in Arlington. I hope someone over there said it. Let's read it all together. Authentic community. Read with me. It says, we believe God created the church to fulfill our relational needs in addition to our spiritual needs. We reject superficiality in relationship with one another, just as we reject superficiality in our relationship with God. We know that all that matters in life is relationships, not accomplishments. We don't want to be superficial here. Love Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't want to be superficial here. Love your neighbor as yourself. If this is weak, this will be weak. But also, if this is weak, this will be weak. The two are connected with one another. You cannot love your heavenly father while not having a relationship with your brothers and sisters. That was what we talked about last week. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to shift from the fellowship gathering component and we're going to shift into the work component, meaning the purpose of our gathering. What is it that we do? We as a church, we preach the gospel. We fellowship with one another. We serve coffee and snacks. We feed the homeless. We do all of those things. Those are all great. But when it comes to the core, what makes us the church? What is the primary purpose of our gathering? That's where this third core value comes into play. And I always say about this core value, this is what makes us not a country club, but an actual church, because if we didn't have this, it would be a country club. But before I tell you what that is, I'm going to ask you a question. Does anyone know what this word means? It's a big word. The word is theanthropic. Okay, you may have heard me talk about this. One of my favorite words when it comes to the church. Anyone know what theanthropic means? I'll give you, I'll give you the root of it. It comes from two Greek words. Theos and anthropos. Theos and anthropos. Theos means... God, okay, agios o theos, holy God, theology, the study of God. What is anthropos? Humans, means mankind. That's why, what is the study of mankind called? Anthropology, right? Anthropology. So, and that's why, like, Neanderthal, and, oh, I'm sorry, that's not the right word. There's another word. No, forget about that one. That's a different word. Okay. <laughs> Theanthropic is meaning God and man. So I like to say it. I'm not the scholarly type. I'm the simple type, okay? Theanthropic means God-man. That's what it literally means. It means God-man. And it means that divinity or deity in human form, because divinity cannot be in human form. Like, divinity is the opposite of humanity. So actually, it's a contradiction in terms, because divinity is the opposite of humanity. Humanity is the opposite of divinity. Theanthropic means divinity in human tangible form. You hear theanthropic, you automatically think of who? Jesus Christ, because that is who he is. He is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the fullness of divinity, okay, one in essence with the Father, but he is in human form, born of a virgin, mankind just like me and you. So you hear theanthropic, you think automatically Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, someone else is theanthropic. There's another person who should come to your mind. Maybe not another person, another organism. Or another being. And who is that? Not Holy Spirit. Mm -mm. Not St. Mary. Us. The church. The church is theanthropic. Because in the same way that Christ was God in the flesh, 
So is the church. Because the church is the blank of Christ. What? The body of Christ. So you can't have the head have a certain nature and the body be a different nature. Like I can't have a, a horse's head, okay, and a dog's body. Okay, if I have, then I'm very confused. So Christ is not confused. Christ is theanthropic. He is divinity in human form, and so is the church. That's why here in the church, we talk about we are sinful people. Every single one of us is sinful. Every one of us is human. But what resides in us is the fullness of the divinity. And you say, hey, Father Anthony, us, the church? And I say, yeah. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the body, the, what does that say? The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the what? According to St. Paul, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Meaning, he who cannot be contained in the heavens and the earth is contained or dwells or resides in the church. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. In, like I said, human form. Because none of us are perfect, and all of us are mistakes, and all of us are, are weak, and all of us are frail. And sometimes we lie to one another, and sometimes we hurt one another, sometimes we talk bad about one another. So the church and the people not being perfect doesn't mean that the divinity of God doesn't reside in it. Does this make sense? Just like when it came to Christ's physical body, just the fact that you cut his body and he would bleed doesn't mean that he's not truly God. Because he was in a frail body, a body with weakness just like us, doesn't negate the divinity that was within. Same is true here in the church. The keys to the kingdom are here in the church in the form of sinful people like me and you. That's why sometimes we say an expression, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but just understand me. I'm not you know, criticizing, but Christ ascended and lives in heaven now. I understand why we say that. I'm not saying it's wrong. Christ did ascend. But we can't say Christ lives in heaven if the church lives here on earth. Because you cannot separate the head from the body. You cannot separate Christ from the church or the church from Christ. Like, think about it. If you separate the church from Christ, doesn't work. Well, I'm saying the same also doesn't work if you separate Christ from his church, which is us here on this earth. Think of it another way. When we receive communion, we have one piece of bread, and that bread is the body of Christ. And that bread is divided into many, many small little pieces, some big, some small, some a little burnt, some a little underdone, okay, some too much yeast, some not enough yeast. But it's all the fullness of him who fills all in all. So regardless of which piece you get, each piece, each piece is the fullness of him who fills all in all. A big piece. Someone told me this one time, like I was giving him communion, he's like, like this, like give me a, give me a, give me a big piece of God. Like I don't want the little, like I don't want to snap. I'll give me like, the, and I'm like, okay. So I just wanted to move the line along, but I want, like it's no different. It's not like okay, you got a little bit, like you got the the fifty percent, like you got the fingernail, and you got like it's not like that. The smallest piece, okay. We don't say crumb when it comes to the body. We say jewels, okay, because a crumb is. But the smallest piece. Okay, which if it falls, it's like call 911, get out of the way. A piece fell. Like we're not going to go home and just leave a piece, but you say it's just a small piece. No, that piece contains the fullness of him who fills all in all. Everyone's with me, right? Well, I'm saying the same thing about the church. Every church, big church, little church. Church with a big fancy building and chandeliers and the dome and the stuff that came from Egypt. And churches just sit here in a rec center or over in a law school. Each church is a piece of the body. And each piece of the body contains the fullness of him who fills all in all. You with me? So because of that, stay with me here. Because of that, because each church 
is the fullness of him. Then every time we meet together, we meet with Christ. Every time we meet here together, we meet with Christ. And therefore, if truly we come to this place and we meet Jesus, can you leave a meeting with Jesus the same way as you came? Is it possible that someone says, yeah, tomorrow I'm having lunch with Jesus? And nothing happens at that lunch. It's like, oh yeah, I don't really remember. I can't remember. Yeah, it wasn't really, really eventful. Can it be possible? Well, I believe the same is true every time we come to church here together because we are the body of Christ. And every time we meet together, church is not a duty. Church is not an extra. Church is not like a, yeah, when I'm bored, when the weather's nice. Church is a meeting with Christ. And what we want to talk about today with this third core value is where the power lies. If every meeting with Christ is transformative and we are here in the church is meeting, the, is meeting Christ because Christ dwells right here, then every time we gather together should be transformational as well. And what I want to talk about is where does that power and transformation lie? Is it in the chairs? Is it come when you sit right there? Okay, you'll be in good shape. Is it in the walls? Okay, like if you build it right, then that's where the trans... Is it in the coffee? That's where it is. Okay, it's like the good coffee line on the left, not the bad one on the right. Like that's where the power lies. Or is it somewhere else? Third core value we're going to talk about today is transformational communal worship. Let's read this all together. We gather to be transformed by the real presence of God in our midst every time we meet. Liturgical prayer is not just a routine. It is life-giving and real. It is the center of our life as a family. The key to tapping into the power of God every time we meet is liturgical communal worship. And that's what we want to talk about today. Because you cannot disconnect who we are from what we do. The two are connected. You cannot disconnect who we are, our identity, from what we do and what we practice on a regular basis. Who we are is the body of Christ. What we practice is coming together, united together, lifting our hearts in one voice and one united spirit. And that's where we are the fullness of the church. I'm not saying that individual prayer and individual worship isn't important. I'm not saying that. Okay, actually, that's our fourth core value, which we're not talking about here today. But what I am saying is that the fullness of what it means is when we gather together. Again, back to the piece of bread. The bread that we have for communion, okay, that, that piece of bread is made up of wheat from over there and a piece of grain from over there and whatever it is. And when it all comes together, by itself, it's just a piece of wheat. And by itself, it's just a piece of grain. And by itself, it's just a piece of yeast. But when you put it all together, when you put it all together, it literally, this means literally, actually literally, literally becomes the body of Christ. And it's the same with us. That you live over there, and you live over there, and you're from over there, and y'all from all over in Arlington, wherever you may, like all of it's scattered. But when it comes together on Sunday morning, around the table of the Lord, we are the body of Christ. Even though individually, we're nothing special, but together, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's why our key thought for today is this, is that God gives power to the church. The church gives power to us. I'm going to break down this sentence. God gives power to the church, the communal, and the communal, the church, gives power to the individual, not the other way around. Let me explain. One of the analogies that Jesus gave to describe our relationship with him is a tree and branches. We're branches. He's the vine. So think about a tree. Okay, that has the roots, and then it's got the stem, and then it's got the branches. The branch feeds off of the stem. 
The branch by itself, like if I take a branch and I break it off and I throw it over there, it doesn't have much value. But if I take the same branch and I put it all together, connect it to the stem, that's where the power lies. The power comes from the stem, the power from the roots to the stem, and then the stem gives it to the branches. We are all the branches. The church is the stem. Another example is the power company. Okay, Virginia, Dominion Power, whatever it may be. Okay, they have the big, you know, power company and they have the, the big thick lines, okay, whatever it may be to go underground or whatever it is. And in those lines is like, you know, 1.21 gigawatts of power, whatever it may be. And then I have this outlet over here. Where's an, there's an outlet over there. I have an outlet over there. And that outlet over there gives me the same power that's in the power company. So I say, okay, this is very powerful. I don't know what I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it in my pocket. So look, I have power everywhere I go. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay, you can put the outlet in your pocket, but you're not going to have any power. The only power is when it's connected right here. That's us. We do have power everywhere we go, but the power comes from the connection to the body of Christ. Every time we come to church on a Sunday, every time, what it is, think of it like, give you another example, is like a candle. Okay, like if I have a candle right here that's not lit, and then when I come to church, Okay, you have a candle, you have a candle, you have a candle. You have... So when I come to church, what I'm doing is I'm lighting my candle and I'm getting power from the church. And then I take that and I go to the ends of the earth and I light the world on fire in a positive evangelistic mission kind of a way. Okay, I take that and I go and I have fire everywhere I go. But the fire comes from our presence together, our, our meeting together here around the table of the Lord. I'm not saying individual isn't important, but what I'm saying is the fullness comes in the group. You know where you can see this very clearly? As in the kingdom of heaven. When St. John writes about heaven, what's the picture that he draws? Does he draw a picture of like each one in the corner, like with their Bible reading by themselves and shh, do not disturb? Is that what he draws? Picture with each one, like me worshiping God and not even worried. No, no, no. The picture that he draws right here, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Okay, many angels all together. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, meaning a lot, okay? A lot, a lot, a lot. And they were singing with one voice, a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It wasn't a group. It wasn't a bunch of individual people by themselves. It was one collective, a body, worshiping. And you know this to be true. I bet you, if you think about your most powerful experiences in worship, I bet you that you will think of group experiences, not individual experiences. Not saying individual can't be powerful, but I bet you, you'll think of, yeah, remember it was like Good Friday and we were singing Thine is the Power and it was like a thousand people. We were one voice and Thine is... Or it was that time we were at that retreat and we were all praying together and you know we closed our eyes and we were singing. And You will think most likely of a group experience, not of an individual experience. Because God gives power to the church, the church gives power to the individual. And this is going to bug some of you. The means by which the church gives power to the individual is called the liturgy. That's the means by which that we receive the power. Now, some of you are going to say, hey, wait a minute, Father Anthony, you at the same liturgy I'm at? You're talking about the same thing? Because when, when I come to liturgy, I don't feel much power. I see a lot of yawning. I see a lot of scratching heads. Feel a lot of like my back hurts. There's this little boy who keeps running back and forth. I don't know why. Okay, like I don't know where he's going. His family's here, but he's there. He's there. Okay, there's that that, that the clicker guy seems to be off every single time. I'm like, what power are you talking about, Father Anthony? 
when I was younger, okay, I think it was, uh, I think it was in college, maybe like start of my college, my family took a trip. No, it was in high school. Sorry, it was in high school. My family took a trip and we went to the Holy Land. We went to Jerusalem and visited all the holy sites. I didn't get much out of that trip because I didn't care at the time. I was a dumb high school kid and I didn't really want to do sightseeing and it was like hot and it was like tired. And I was, I was, honestly, I was more excited about cable TV in a foreign land than I was about seeing any of the holy sites. I'll be honest, okay? I was a high school kid. Now, like my wife and I always talk about it, like, oh, what an opportunity I wasted. Like, what an, like, I would love now to go to the place where Jesus walked on water and just sit there. I would love to go to the Jordan River and read the passage about Jesus going in. Like, I would love to go to where the Sermon on the Mount and read the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe even give a sermon myself. Like, I would love to do that one day. Question for you. The Holy Land, which was very uninteresting to me when I was in high school, is now very interesting to me. Did it change? Is it any more different? Is it any different today than it was 15, not 15, but many years ago when I was in high school? Is it any different? No, who's different? Me. Same with liturgy. Again, when I was a youngster and going to church, my parents would say, Holy Week and Good Friday and come home from college to go. Man, I made up any excuse to come as late as possible because what Holy Week meant to me is long and hot and hot. Okay, it was just very hot. It was just, I just had this picture of sweat, okay, and like stank, okay, just like, you know what I mean? That's, that's what I thought. So I did anything to avoid it. Now, now the AC is a little bit better, okay, we've made improvements there. I think Holy Week is the best time of year. And I'm the guy when everyone's like, it's been, I'm like, no, no, no. We just started. No, no, no. Keep going. No, no, no. Throw away the clocks. I'm the guy who's throw away the clock on Good Friday. There are no clocks on Good Friday. That's me. Did the rights of the church change? Good Lord, no. They never change. Okay? They didn't change. What changed is me. And I think the same is true when it comes to liturgy. When people say liturgy is boring, or liturgy is whatever, or liturgy is... I'm telling you, it's not the issue with the liturgy. I think that if my experience at the liturgy isn't transformational, maybe the problem isn't the liturgy. Maybe it's me. And this is like the wrong thing to say in 2021. You never say this. Because if there's any problem, it's never me. It's always everyone else's fault. Because okay? that's what we've been taught. It's to blame someone else. It's not my responsibility. No, it's not my fault. It's, uh, they're not uh, doing it the way I would do it. Oh, it's not my fault because uh, they don't have icons the way I want it. Oh, no, no, it's not my fault. I'm stuck behind the tall guy. I'm always behind the tall guy. No matter where I go, like I'm always behind the tall guy. I can't see anything. It's not my fault. I did my best. It's, it's, the problem is, is not my fault. When they fix it, then I will benefit from it. Maybe, you ever ask yourself, maybe you're not doing it right? Maybe the problem isn't the liturgy, which has been around for thousands of years. Maybe the problem isn't that which we say, which St. Paul writes about when we have the liturgy, that which angels desire to behold. Like maybe the angels figured it out and maybe it's us. Maybe when we talk about how, how we celebrate the, the, the Eucharist, it's like celebrating the Last Supper. It's like being with Jesus around the table of the Last Supper. Like maybe, maybe it is everything that we've read that it is. Maybe the problem is me. Like what I want us to do is to approach today with a spirit of humility and say, if I am not benefiting, and if my liturgical experience is not transformational, maybe it's me. With that said, 
I may, may acknowledge right away that I always tell this to people who are coming to liturgy for the first time. I understand liturgy is kind of an acquired taste. And I'm not saying from day one. I think sometimes that's the worst thing we do is we tell someone who we want to invite them to the church, come to church, come to my, they grew up doing nothing, say, come to liturgy, it's like heaven on earth. It's like heaven on earth. And I always tell them, please don't say that, okay? Because it absolutely is heaven on earth, but not from day one. Okay, it's the kind of thing, it takes a little bit of time. And I always tell people, I tell people, 10 is your magic number. You cannot even start to ask questions about the liturgy till you've attended 10 times. So I like to set the bar right off the bat is liturgy absolutely is. It is heaven on earth. It is the intersection of heaven on this, on this earth. But it's not from day one. And it's also not without some effort on our part. Like it is not something you just walk into and experience the beauty of. But it's something, think of it like back in the, in the, in the, the 40s when they used to uh, mining for gold. And they said, you know, like the, the gold rush. And there's, this mountain has gold. This mountain has gold. This mountain has gold. So what do you do? You just show up on the mountain, they give you a piece of gold? Okay, I'm here. Send the gold. Is that how it works? What do you need to do if you're going to get that gold? Roll up the sleeves and start digging. And if we came today again with our 2021 attitude, we come and say, no gold. The mountain is broken. Or it's the system is against me or whatever. We we'll make up whatever it is. And the problem is No. The mountain has gold, but you're not doing the work. You're not rolling up your sleeves, and the mountain is not going to vomit the gold into your lap. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves. You're going to have to dig a little bit, and the liturgy is the same way. I'm telling you, it is gold, but it takes a little bit of sweat. It takes a little bit of effort, a little bit of spiritual sweat. We talk about liturgy. Okay, The word liturgy, the, 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 the word itself, means the work of the people, not the rest of the people. <laughs> Okay, not the relaxing of the people. Like the, the picture of the liturgy should be a picture of someone working, okay? Like digging, like hard hat, not a person in a hammock. Okay, that's kind of how we think of it. Like we walked in, okay, and I don't know why. It wasn't, it wasn't anything special. I got there at like 9.45, okay, when there was still like a half hour left, and I, I don't know why. No, 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 that's not how it works. You can even ask Marianne, my wife, is that there's certain times on Sunday, like I come home on Sundays, tired. And I think that if you're not tired on a Sunday, you didn't do something right. Okay. I come home on, on Sunday, like say two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, whatever it may be. And Marianne's got the lunch waiting for me. She knows I'm hungry. So I eat my lunch and I eat my thing. And then this used to surprise her. Now it doesn't. An hour later, an hour later, Marianne, what do I ask after eating that big lunch at three o'clock? said, where's dinner? Like when's dinner coming? Because then I eat another plate like that, especially during football season. We just, you know, because that, that, that's, I think if you're not tired, then maybe you didn't do it right. Because liturgy is supposed to be work, liturgy is supposed to be effort. So with that said, what I want to do real quick right now, is I want to talk very, very practical. Let us assume, okay, if you tell me liturgy is boring and liturgy, okay, just give me, assume that I am right, just, just give me the benefit of the doubt, and let's see if there's something that we can do on an individual level to get to that point that you're saying, Father Anthony, it's transformational. I haven't tasted it. Let's see if there's something that I can do on my end. And I believe there are certain things that we can do, be very, very, very practical right here, that I think if you, it's kind of like working out. I'm not saying hit the gym the first day and do this and you'll be fine. But I'm saying if you consistently do these things that I believe that over the course of a year, two years, five years, 10 years, I believe your experience on Sunday mornings will be significantly different than it is today. With me? Three things that you can do, and I want to do it in a past, present, and future. Something you do before liturgy, something you do during liturgy, and something you do at all times, even after the liturgy. Let's start with the before. 
Before liturgy, what you need to do to gain the most out of it, I say is the three R's. And the three R's that I always talk about is read, rest, and repent. Read, rest, and repent. Read, rest, and repent. Let's start with read. Read is easy. Read means before you come to church, you read the readings, okay? And reading readings, like talk about something that has very little effort that can have a huge return on investment. I'm talking about seven minutes of your time that can make a night and day difference. Especially now, the cost is very little because it's all on an app and all you gotta do is, all you gotta do is know the date. That's all you gotta do. Put it in the app and the readings will be spewed out to you. Okay, when I was growing up, it wasn't like that. You had to have that little calendar, okay, where you rip the days off, okay, one after the other, and sometimes it's a typo, whatever it may be, and we have to, now all you need to do is download the app, which is free. Why are the readings so important? If I were to tell you, let's say today you get home from, from church, you get an email, not from your boss, not from his boss, but from the CEO of the company, CEO of the company, says, I have a meeting with you tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock in the morning. And then he writes, attached to this email is a document with the agenda that I'm going to cover. And it's a one-on-one -on -one meeting, just me and you. How many of you are going to open that attachment? Those of you who aren't going to open it will be in the unemployment line probably on Tuesday. Because the CEO takes time out of his day to put together an agenda and to email it to you. Man, the least you can do is double-click on the thing. The least you could do. Every Sunday, God says, I want to meet with you. And he sends us the agenda. And you know, the agenda for this Sunday is different than the agenda for last Sunday. Different than the agenda for next Sunday. The agenda is the readings. And the readings are make a night and day difference. Because the readings are what tell us that this week, we're talking about Levi and the call and follow me. And then next, and then the week before, we were talking about something completely different. One week, we're talking about repentance. One week, we're talking about prayer. One week, we're talking about love your enemies. These are not the same liturgical experience. Each one is a meeting with God where God has an agenda, but you don't know what the agenda is. So of course, you're not going to benefit from that experience. And let me add on, when I say the readings, let me add on to the readings, the hymns, and the rituals, and the rites, which also, which also change okay, by season in the church. You know, what, you know why those are so important? Think how you would go to an event. And I tell you, we're going to an event, and it's an anniversary. It's anniversary celebration. Okay? Do you think there'd be a difference in your mindset going to an anniversary celebration if it's an anniversary of a wedding versus an anniversary of a death? Makes a difference, doesn't it? Like, imagine you're thinking the wedding, and you got balloons and stuff like that, and it's a death. You're going in the wrong thing. Or you go to the wedding with the black and I'm so sorry. Like, it's not going to work. Well, the rites of the church tell us the mood of the day. And this is the day we're going to rejoice and we're going to sing these hymns. This is the day we're going to focus on repentance. And we're going to say, I have sinned, I have sinned. And it's not the same at all. So if you are not, again, high, high, high return on investment is the readings and the rituals, which again are just the push of a button. We do the readings before we come. Number two, we get rest before we come. We get rest before we come. Because how can God touch your heart if your eyes can't stay open? Like how in the world is God going to reach your heart if your eyes and your mind? Think about it. Anything important in life, you get rest for. You prepare the night before. Well, why church is different? Why do we think we can stay out late on Saturday night? We can do nonsense on Saturday night. We can have no preparation whatsoever 
and then we can show up and ready for a transformative experience on a Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way. Think about any time you've ever had anything important in a morning. I guarantee you, you changed the way that you approached the night prior. This is why the church gives us Vespers every Saturday night. The point of the Vesper service is not just another thing to add to the schedule. The point is, is we as human beings, every aspect of life, we do not deal well with sudden changes. We don't. We do better when we warm up. Okay? We do better if we're going to run a marathon to get loose beforehand. If we're going to do something uh, intense to get the body warm, we do better when we ease into things. Same thing. If Saturday night is focused on this and we're out over here or whatever it may be, and then all of a sudden, you, it's not like turning a switch on, a, on a, changing the channel. All of a sudden, I'm in church mode. Church says, no, no, no. Saturday night. Start to get ready for something. Start to get loose. Start to stretch out. Okay? Get stretched out. Get, get in the right spirit. Saturday night, take it as a night of prayer. Take it as a night to prepare the readings. Take it as a night to sleep early. And I guarantee you, I'm telling you this on a personal level, one of the biggest differences in my life that helped me so much in my life is when I started thinking about my days, not as day and night, but as night and day, which is actually the way that the world, like the world didn't used to think about the day beginning at midnight. It used to be at sunset. Okay, and even it's actually biblical, if you go back to the book of Genesis, when God created, it says that he created light or whatever it may be, and it was evening and day was the first day. Evening and day the second day. So I don't think about my Sundays as from Sunday midnight, okay, to the end of today. My Sunday is Saturday night to Sunday midday. That's a day, okay? And then the day prior, like Saturday's a rest day for me. The rest begins Friday night, and it goes through Saturday morning. But Saturday night, that's a work, okay? Get ready in the right spirit for Sunday morning. See how it works? And I'm telling you, if you have this mindset before you come on Sunday, it make a big difference. So first is read, second is rest, third is repent. And this one I won't talk about too much, but I'll tell you this, the goal of Sunday is not a change, okay, of information, a change of our mind, but it's a change of heart. So the way you change your heart is you come with a proper heart attitude. When you come to church on Sunday, you will say one expression 1,000 times. And what is that expression? It's three words. You will say, Lord, have mercy. Well, let me ask you a question. If you didn't spend any time repenting, what are you saying, Lord, have mercy for? You ever think about that? If you don't have a heart of repentance, if you don't spend any time thinking of like what it is, what's the repentance that you're coming with, that you're going to say, Lord, have mercy. And what is it you're asking mercy for? Because if the answer is nothing, then just keep your mouth shut. You might as well save the energy. But when we come, we come with a heart of repentance. That's why when I said, I said, read, rest, and repent. The whole body, the whole person. Read, my mind has to be prepared. Rest, my body needs to be prepared. Repent, my spirit has to be prepared when I come on Sunday. Okay? That's the first level. Before we come, we do the three R's. Three R's are what? Three R's are, say it with me. Say They are, read, rest, repent. Number two, during the liturgy, we actively participate. We actively participate. We do not attend liturgy. We pray liturgy. It's a big difference. You attend a movie. You attend a show. You do not attend liturgy. Like, uh, today's performance wasn't as good as last week's. You know what I mean? Like, I like last week's show cast better than this week's. No, we don't attend. We pray liturgy. Book of Acts chapter 12 was the first, the first time that the church was facing persecution in a major way. Acts chapter 12. What you had seen at this point in time is that the church started to grow and the people, the Jewish leaders, were not happy about it because they were preaching some stuff. So they started to lock down on them. 
And at the time, Peter and James were captured, okay, put in prison, and James was killed. Okay, he was the first one to die okay, as, as a martyr. He was killed, Peter was in prison, and they were getting ready to kill him too. Look what it says right here in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. The rest of the chapter talks about how Peter was miraculously saved and freed from prison. But what I want to focus on is not that. It says constant prayer was offered by the church. Do you think that Peter wasn't praying on his own before this miracle? You think Peter wasn't praying? The guy who was, who was closest to Christ wasn't praying. Do you think John wasn't praying and James wasn't praying? Well, James had been killed, so he wasn't praying. Okay. Do you think that, that no one else of his friends was praying? They were all praying on their own. But it wasn't until they got together and they prayed. Remember back to the candle analogy that I gave you. It was when all the individual candles came together that they formed a what? A blowtorch that shook the heavens and the chains fell off Peter and he was free. I'm telling you, that's supposed to be us on Sunday. And my fear, can you imagine when they were standing here praying? Can you imagine they were gathered together for prayer and one guy was in the corner and he just kept looking at his watch and he's like, when is this thing over? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that one guy was like, you know, I'm tired. To no, no, no. What gave power to it was that every single person was all their heart, all their soul was praying. There's power in that. And that's why we talk about the liturgy as the work of the people. You know, I as a priest, I cannot pray a liturgy by myself. I can't. I can say the words. I can go through the motions. But that's not liturgy. Liturgy is when the people come together. It's the work of the people. We have to all be together. You need a priest. You need a deacon. You need a congregation. Like you need all the parts together. And what I'm telling you, even in a more specific sense, is liturgy on Sunday needs you and you and you and you and you and you. And definitely you over there. Like without you, it needs every single one of us. And if we're not doing our part, everyone is weakened. So when you come on Sunday, it's time to sing. Sing with all your heart. Sing with gusto. Sing with energy. When it's time to stand, stand without complaining and without the, uh. When it's time to pray and in silence, close your eyes and pray in silence. When it's time to say, pray for the peace of the world, pray for the peace of the world. When it's time to say, Lord, have mercy, say, Lord, have mercy, and mean, Lord, have mercy. Participate in the prayers with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And see if it makes a difference. Again, another analogy. Showing up to the liturgy and not participating. Think of it like I take a $100 bill and I go to Wall Street and I say, here I am, I want to get rich. And I put the money down on the table. Will I get rich? If I want to get rich, see all those people are getting rich. Yeah, because they're doing the Wall Street thing, which is like investing and buying and selling and, you know, in the movie, they're all screaming and sell, buy, whatever. Okay, they're doing that stuff. Well, the same thing here at church on Sunday. If you're just going to sit in the corner, you're not going to get rich. You're not going to be transformed. Yeah, again, the, the transformation is not in the chairs. It's in the participation when we all do in our part. So ask yourself, how many times you come to church on Sunday to work? How many times you come to church on Sunday to roll up your sleeve versus how many times you come on Sunday just to attend. And let me tell you something. I believe so strongly in this principle that I'll tell you a little secret about me. Is that any time that I find myself in need of strong prayer, I find myself weak, I find myself in need of like a pick-me-up, I'll tell you what I do, I kind of cheat. 
what I do is I call for a prayer meeting in the church. I'm cheating is what I'm doing because I get to write the announcements. And what I'm saying is, I need help. I need help. I need help. I can't do it on my own. Like, I'm praying on my own, and I'm praying, and I'm doing my best, but hey, I get weak, or I need more. And I'm telling you right now, that's where we are as a church family. That's why we had a beautiful prayer meeting last night for those who were there. Okay, and we have another one this coming Saturday, which I really hope everyone is going is to join us. And we are gathering together for prayer because we need it. And we as a church, we're trying to do something incredible these days. And this whole more than a building. And we're trying to raise enough money to build this building, which it, 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 I don't even know how we've gotten this far. I know we've gotten this far because many people have individually prayed. And many people have individually rolled up their sleeves. But what I'm saying now, time for us to come together and put all those candles together, all the candles together. And what's going to happen? Blowtorch. Because I know this, that God may at some point not hear my prayers, but I know that if we join together in prayer, there's no way he can ignore all of us. That's what he said. Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. God can ignore me, but no way he ignores all of us when we're together. And that takes us to our last thing. Before, we said we're going to read, repent, and rest. During, we're going to actively participate. At all times, we're going to strive for unity. We're going to strive for unity. And I'll be honest, this is the secret sauce of the power of liturgical prayer, is the unity of heart and the unity of mind. The key to unlock the heart of the Father, the key to unlock the heart of God, is to be united together with one's brothers and sisters. I, as a father myself, okay, Here's the two rules in my household. There are many things that many rules, that's no, it comes down to two rules. The two rules are honor your parents, love your siblings. Those are the two rules in the mess of household. That's it. If you honor your parents and you love your siblings, then everything's going to be good in this household. And I believe the same in the house of God. We honor God by obeying God, by worshiping God, by glorifying God. We honor God and we love our siblings. And back to my household, if you're not loving your siblings, you're not actually honoring your father because your father told you to love your siblings. So let's say this way. Let's say my kids come to me and, and Michael, my son, says, Dad, come with me here and I want to do this and let's play and we'll go here. And then my daughter says, well, actually, Dad, I want to go here and let's go out to eat this, whatever it may be. And I say, okay, let's all go together. And then she says, no, not him. And he says, no, not her. I'll go. I want you to come with me, but not her. And she, I don't want him. What am I going to do? What am I as the dad going to do? I have a seat and watch TV and do nothing. Do absolutely nothing. You want me to go with you? You want me to go with you? But you don't want to go with each other? Okay, have fun. I'm going to sit right here. I'm not going with either one of you. Until you get it along with each other and figure this thing out, I'm going with either one of you. I think God does the same thing. Like God, the Holy Spirit is one. So if you say, Holy Spirit, come to me, but don't go over there. And you say, Holy Spirit, come to me, but don't go over there. I don't like him. I don't like her. And she says, he's this. Holy Spirit says, okay, have fun. Do whatever you want to do. I'm going to sit here. I have, I have plenty to keep me busy. <clears throat> the secret to the power of the early church was their unity together. Like, can you imagine the disciples? Think of some of the things that we say. Can you imagine the disciples being like, I don't want to sit next to him. I don't want to sit next to him. He's posted this about me. He's not or I don't want to sit next to her, she, or uh, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, James stole, it was my turn to cast out the demon, and James, it was my turn. 
Like, can you imagine some of the silly things that we squabble about? Of course not. And that's why they did miracles. That's why they raised the dead. That's why they opened the eyes of the blind. That's why they preached the gospel and turned the world upside down, because they were united together. Let me show you some verses. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts chapter 4, 24. You can guess what it's going to say. When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Maybe, maybe one of the reasons why we have weakness in the liturgy today. Maybe why some of us, we don't, because we are not striving for unity at all costs. We're not fighting for it. And it's impossible to be connected to God when we're disconnected to one another. That's why one of the most important parts of the liturgy, COVID or no COVID, is the kiss of peace. Okay, and that's why some people are like, you know, we don't need the kiss of peace and COVID and whatnot. No. Kiss of peace is an essential part of the liturgy. How it's done may be different. Okay, it used to actually be a kiss, like a like a kiss, okay, of peace. And we've changed it. And we did the hand and the thick and some churches, the handshake or something, whatever. I don't care how it's done. But the kiss of peace is essential because you cannot be united with your father and be disconnected from your brother and sister. Again, it's back to the bread. The wheat says, I want to be the body of Christ, but I don't want to be next to that wheat. No, no, no. Like, you want to be part of the body? You're going to have to be connected with the other little pieces of wheat and the other little pieces of grain. And if not, that's why I'll show you a passage right here. I won't, I won't talk much about it. I'm just going to show you this passage, and I'll tell you this is one of the most important passages. It's Ephesians chapter 4. St. Paul talks about what does it mean to be part of the church. Ephesians is all about the church, and the church, and the church, the body of Christ. And I want you to read this carefully, and I want you to take it to heart. He says, I urge you, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, because there is one body and one Spirit. So each one of us needs to take a look in the mirror and be honest. And I'm not here to judge or anything like that, but I'm here to say honest, is that some of us are not striving for unity at all costs. Some of us, maybe, I hope not, and I'm not pointing fingers, but I'm saying some of us, maybe not, not striving for unity, but maybe we're actually a cause of disunity. Maybe we're a cause of division. And if that's the case, I need to examine myself. And let me tell you this. Start to think about this. You know who's the most susceptible to being a source of division in the church? Who's the most susceptible? The one who's been in church longest. It's never the person who just joined the church that brings division. The longer you've been in the church, the more susceptible you are to the devil playing with your head. And I'll tell you how you know this is starting to be you. This is you when you walk into a church, either this church or visiting a church, and we've all done this. Let's be honest. We've all done this. We walk in, and our first thought is, I would have done it this way. That's fine. They can do that. Oh, that's the way they do it? Okay, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. You can... Be careful. Be careful. When you walk into a place, and your first thought is, why are they doing it that way? How come it's not this? Why did she say that? Why did he post that? How come this person? Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Because I don't want you to miss out on the transformational power of the liturgy. And I don't want us to miss out on what God wants to do in us. Let me give you a verse and then a quote from a church father right here. Let's go Acts chapter 4, verse 31. This is what it should be. This is what it's supposed to be with us. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were one heart, 
one soul. This is supposed to be us. This is how we were made to live. And I'm telling you, if we come to church on Sunday, what I want you to take away, if we come to church on Sunday and our experience is not this, not the place being shaken, then whose fault is it? It's my fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's each one of our fault. We need to always be easier to blame someone else versus take ownership. We're going to take ownership of our liturgical life. One, before we come, we're going to read, we're going to rest, we're going to repent. Two, when we come, we are going not just to attend, we're going to actively participate. And then number three, at all times, we will examine ourselves to make sure that we are not a source of disunity. We will strive for be one heart and one mind with the body of Christ. And when we do that, We'll taste this verse, St. John Chrysostom. I love this quote about the Eucharist. He says, We receive within us, meaning communion, we receive within us the same body of our Lord Christ that was born in the manger of Bethlehem, the same body that walked on the Sea of Galilee, the same body that was crucified on Calvary, the same body that resurrected from the tomb, the same body that ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. There is no power in life greater than this. My prayer and hope is that unlike that lady I told you in the beginning, that when we have something precious in front of us, we do not waste it because we don't realize what it is. What we have in front of us, again, we are not a country club. We're not a people who have common interests. We're people who are centered as the liturgical life, the table of the Lord, where we receive within us the greatest power of Christ himself, and that's available to us, but we have to do our part to find it. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your body and blood. Thank you for your church, which you've allowed us to be part of, to give us something powerful here, which is divine on this earth. Help us, Lord, to realize the value and to make the most of this opportunity that you've given to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, the prayers of all your saints. Here, as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. We want to invite you one more time to partner with us in bringing an ancient faith to a modern world. You can donate any amount now at morethanabuilding.org and be sure to follow us on social media for real-time updates and even more inspiration during the week. Have a good one.